Uh, if you'll take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 3, it's uh, the beginning of the year, and uh, we're doing a special series of messages on one of the most important paragraphs, actually, in the entire Bible. Uh, this is the third message on Romans chapter 3. Uh, next week, we'll be back in the Gospel of Luke. I'm excited about that, but at the beginning of the year, I, uh, I think it's good for us to stop and think a little bit about our vision and mission as a, as a church, why we're here. Uh, we actually got together yesterday as elders in the morning, Saturday morning, to look forward to the future a little bit and to plan about where God may want us to go as Cornerstone Bible Church, and I think that's important for us to do, obviously, and we'll find a way to talk about that together as a church. And uh, it's important for us to do because the church is the most significant institution on the plan planet right now in terms of what God is, is doing. We have been given uh, the greatest privileges and really have the most urgent responsibilities. So it is important for us to think, are we doing that? How do we do that? What is our vision for the future? What is our mission? The only problem being, as I, I think I've said before, where we can get in trouble is that I think sometimes when we think about our vision or our mission as a church, we focus first on ourselves and what we do. That's kind of how we roll as, as humans. When we really need to begin with God and what God has done, if we're going to get this right, because we are witnesses, essentially. I'm uh, reading Acts and getting ready for when we finally get to Acts after we finish Luke. <laughs> And Acts explains the relevance of the church as being witnesses, which means that we are here to testify to something, to proclaim something, to proclaim someone. In other words, a large part of why we exist has to do with a message. Paul called himself a servant of the gospel. Even though he was this great apostle, he knew the message was more important than him. He existed for the message, and we exist for the message. We exist for the gospel. We are here to proclaim the gospel, to protect the gospel in a sense, to preserve the gospel, to promote the gospel, to live lives that point other people to the gospel. Everything revolves around the gospel. So of course we constantly need to be thinking about the gospel and making sure we get the gospel right and making sure that we're not getting sidetracked that we're kind of staying locked in on the message that God has given to us to proclaim. And it takes a little work to do that, actually. Uh, for one thing, just because there's a lot of noise out there, we're, we're swimming in a sea of data, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and there's all these things for us to think about, and some of it we need to think about, and some of it we don't need to think about, but there's just so much information all the time that it's easy for us to get distracted from what matters most. And then, of course, there's also a Satan. There's not just a lot of information. There's a Satan. We have an adversary as a church who hates the church and who hates this message and who deals in deception, and so we don't always... We don't only have all this extra information that is tempting us to become distracted. There's also a lot of flat-out lies out there, false teaching that can be confusing. And so it's important for us to 
constantly be going back to scripture and making sure we've understood the message, the central message of Christianity. What is Christianity really all about? As, as individuals, as a church, getting it wrong, getting sidetracked is a very, very real threat. This is one of the saddest realities of being a missionary in, in Africa, meeting lots of people over the years, uh, lots of people who use the word Christian and who use the word gospel and who are part of churches, which should be exciting, right, of course, but wasn't always exciting because when they start talking, you, you realize that what they're talking about sounds very different than what you read in the Bible. Even now, I think, coming back with all that's gone on the past couple years, COVID, politics, you listen to, to Christians and you listen to churches, and I think you, you see there are a lot of different messages that are being proclaimed out there as being most important, as being most urgent, which is why we've been starting this year by going back to the book of, of Romans. That's what we're doing, and we're, we're going to Romans because it is Paul's most systematic and most thorough explanation of the message he had been set apart by God to spend his life proclaiming. And we've been seeing that right at the heart of Paul's ministry was something he calls the gospel, a message about the cross, and right at the heart of the message about the cross that he was given by God to proclaim was an explanation of how God justifies sinners on the basis of what Christ has done through faith apart from, from works. In other words, at the heart of the gospel is a message about justification by faith alone. And I know that's kind of a academic way of, of putting it, but it's a, a message about how you can have peace with God. And of course, that's not the only part of the gospel, and it's not the only thing that's actually important for us to understand about the message we've been given to proclaim, but in some ways, it is key to unlocking and understanding the message of Scripture. It is what many have said separates true Christianity from false Christianity. It is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. The Apostle Paul was passionate about it for sure. In one place, he even says that if an angel were to come and preach a message that is different, that somehow contradicts this message about justification by faith alone, let him be anathema. In other words, let that angel be accursed. In other words, let him be damned which is a, a huge thing for Paul to say. And today I want to help you remember why. Why is this so important? First of all, because when I think about Cornerstone, our vision, I want us to get this right. I want us to be a church that knows justification by faith alone. But more than that, I want us to be a church that loves it and that loves Jesus because of what the gospel reveals about justification by faith alone. And to be a church that understands the implications, that can connect the dots, that is actually living lives on a daily basis differently in light of what the Bible teaches about justification by faith alone. And so I've been wanting at the beginning of the year to remind you a little of what makes this doctrine so important 
and so beautiful and so urgent. And if you've been here, you know that we've said that starts, first of all, with understanding your need for justification. We'll never really trust in Jesus until we start distrusting ourselves. It is like a locked doctrine, justification by faith, until you know how much you need it. And part of understanding how much you need it begins with understanding God is angry at all ungodliness. And that, Paul makes clear, you are ungodly, which means if you're an unbeliever, God is angry with you. And of course, we've got all kinds of excuses, but if we use what God says matters, his standard of right and wrong to evaluate our lives, we see if we were to stand before him as a judge on our own on the basis of how we've lived our life, he's got every reason. His only option is going to be condemnation. And like I even said last week, I don't want to preach those sermons all over again, but I think it's important to recognize how much cultural pressure you face not to take the idea of God's judgment seriously. I don't want us to get distracted, but in our culture, from babyhood, you are being told that you are good and special, and that judgment is completely a negative thing. Like, people shouldn't be judged. Even the the worst of criminals are basically just misunderstood. In fact, I was watching a movie over Christmas. It made billions of dollars, this movie. And one of the major themes of this movie was that it would be wrong for this superhero to allow these supervillains who had murdered all kinds of people, it would be wrong for him to allow them to be punished because they were just misunderstood. And so instead, he was somehow supposed to use science to save them. And I don't want us to get distracted if you love that movie. But the point is, that made enough sense to people that it made billions of dollars. That's kind of the world we're living in right now. It doesn't take judgment seriously. And that makes it very hard to understand justification. Because justification is a very particular word, actually. And we talked about this last week. First week, we talked about our need for justification. The second week, we talked about the meaning of justification. And justification is an act of God, a declaration. You could even say a verdict. It's a courtroom verdict. We are the defendants. You are the defendant. God is the judge. And charges have been filed against us. And the judge makes a verdict. Either he examines the evidence and we are pronounced guilty, that's condemnation, or we are declared righteous, which is called justification. And honestly, given everything Paul said in Romans 1 and 2, God making that verdict about us seems impossible. Condemnation seems like it's our only option. And it's that impossible problem, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and following, that the gospel answers. Because the gospel reveals a perfect righteousness, which is apart from us, keeping the law, and it's one that will pass the judgment of God because, in Paul's words, it is the righteousness of God. It is the righteousness that God gives to those who don't deserve it because they have trusted him for it on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And it's that last word that is really important because, again, that's where it's easy to miss the meaning of justification. 
Because while we might know that, of course, we're not declared right by God on the basis of our own works, we're, we're, we're sometimes tempted to think that we can be declared right by God on the basis of our own sorrow. In other words, God will forgive me on judgment day because I'm sorry. But being sorry doesn't deal with the actual sin and, and guilt. We are declared righteous by God because he has judged our sin in Christ. That is what was happening on the cross. That is what makes the cross so exciting. It's like God moved judgment day forward for those who have put their faith in Christ. God's judged their sin already when he poured out his anger on Jesus on the cross. Listen to the way Paul puts it in verse 23. He says, Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received through, his, through faith, which is pretty much Paul's most basic explanation of what the gospel is about, which makes it no surprise that he follows up by giving us some reasons why this is so important. So I want to look at Romans 3, 25 and following today, where Paul gives us four reasons this matters so much. And the first reason has to do with God. It glorifies God. Verse 25, second part. This was to show God's. And you know, he's talking about the cross. When Paul talks about the reason Jesus died on the cross, he begins with God. Verse 26, it was to show his. So Paul's explaining the importance of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And when he goes to explain why this doctrine is so important for us to get right, he begins with God, which is important for us to see because it's so different from the way we start most of the time. Because when we think about the cross and justification, we think about ourselves. And so if someone asks us the reason Jesus died on the cross, we might say Jesus died for us, which of course is true, but we have to go deeper to understand why this matters so much, because when Paul talks about the reason for the cross, here he begins by talking about God. This was to show God's. This was to show his. As I've heard someone put it before, and you probably have too, Jesus died for God. He died to demonstrate the righteousness of God. And this is exciting, but it's easy to miss because we're tempted to think of ourselves as being the center of the universe, which is why, for example, when people talk about things like God and judgment and sin, the question that we're usually asking is mostly, how can God judge sinners? Because that's what we think is the problem. How can God judge sin? I, I used to struggle with that for, for, for many years. When the, the real problem actually is basically the opposite, and that is, how can God forgive sin? Because he's holy and he's righteous. And like we've been saying the past couple weeks, he's not God if he's not holy and he's not righteous. If he were like us, kind of random and inconsistent and sometimes get ang angry about things and other times 
doesn't mind, he would be very hard to count on, but he isn't like us. The Bible says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, which means he always acts in accordance with what is right. He always rewards good, and he always punishes evil, which makes the Old Testament a problem, which Paul brings up first. He says, end of verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Former sins being the sins we read about in the Old Testament. And so you know how we sometimes think of the Old Testament as a problem because of all the like wrath and, and justice. And people are like, wow, I read the Old Testament. It seems like God's angry all the time. But it's really the opposite. The reason the Old Testament is a problem is because of all the mercy and all the grace. In fact, it's confusing if you understand the righteousness of God, how there even is an Old Testament, actually. Because knowing what we know about God, we would have expected him to immediately kill Adam and Eve after they sinned. And they're just the start. As we look back at the Old Testament, there are all kinds of people whose sins were not punished. I mean, if we're serious about what we said about the law, Abraham, Moses, and David, they were all sinners, big time. And not a single one of them had a righteousness on their own that could justify them before God. And yet, Paul says, in his divine forbearance, which means patience, verse 25, God chose to pass over their sin. And so the question that you've got to be asking is, how could he do that? And David is a really good example because David committed adultery and he murdered and he admits, I've sinned against the Lord. And yet Nathan the prophet says, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. And the question is how? Because that sounds nice, but how is it possible if God really is just and if God really is righteous? And as one man explains, the Old Testament is filled with stories like that, filled with stories of unrighteous people who were blessed by God, who entered into a relationship with God, and who enjoyed the salvation of God and the promise of being part of his eternal kingdom, which only could have been possible if God were passing over their sin. Because if God was dealing with them as their sin deserved, they couldn't have had any of that. And yet if God was passing over their sin, how could he be righteous? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Because that's a problem if God is at the center of the universe. And it's the kind of problem Paul was concerned about because Paul was primarily concerned about the glory of God. And he knew the sacrificial system obviously wasn't gonna be the answer. While it might've been a picture of God's righteousness, all those animals dying, the blood of animals couldn't take away a human's guilt. That's obvious. Most of us understand that. Instinctively, a lamb dying can't erase the guilt of what I did. It's, it's still there, the guilt. I steal from you, the lamb dies. How's, how's that take away the actual guilt? And the Bible is clear, it doesn't. It can't in Hebrews 10. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, which is why Paul says Jesus came. God put forward Jesus, if you look at the beginning of verse 25, as a propitiation. Because for a long time, God was patient. 
And because he was being patient like that, it looked like he didn't care about sin. But his passing over sin didn't mean that he was ignoring it or overlooking it at all. Instead, he was just postponing the judgment, which is why Paul says the cross shows Christ or God's righteousness. It's like it vindicates God's righteousness. Yes, you can be sure God is righteous. He didn't just ignore David's murder. He didn't just not care that Abraham allowed his wife to get married to someone else and lied saying she was his sister. Instead, as they put their faith in his promise of mercy, he postponed their punishment. That's what it means for him to pass over their sin. He postponed their punishment until Jesus came. And then it's like he took the sins of these men and just piled them on Jesus and poured out all the anger that he had been storing up all those years for their sin on him on the cross, like he does with us. The cross shows us God's righteousness. I mean, we tend to think the cross shows us God's grace, and it does but it shows us his righteousness as well because it shows us he is not a God who has ever once failed to punish sin. You know, it's funny people say, if you believe in justification by faith alone, then you're going to take sin lightly. When the reality is just the opposite because it shows us God's righteousness, how God justified sinners. If you believe justification by works you will take sin lightly. I guarantee it. Because there is no way that you can think God is that holy if you think he will accept the things that you have done as a means of satisfying his righteousness. I mean, if I really thought that me doing some good can make God overlook all the times that I've thought terrible things and I've said terrible things and wanted terrible things, then I'm telling you, it would be because I take sin way too lightly. I don't know what kind of God that people think they can satisfy on the basis of these little things that they do, but it is not the God of the Bible. And it's how God justifies sinners that makes me take sin seriously because I see that God takes sin so seriously that he can't just forgive it without pouring out his wrath. I think it was Jonathan Edwards who who said, even the way God shows his grace to sinners is frightening. Have you ever thought about that? This is is important. Have you ever been frightened by the cross? Because sure, as we look back at the cross, it brings joy because we know what it accomplished. It, it, It means we're forgiven. It means we're accepted. But the thing is, that same work that produces all that joy in our hearts is frightening Because in order for you to be accepted by God, someone had to die. God had to crucify Jesus. He didn't just grant us forgiveness. He punished sin so that we can be forgiven. Which is what Paul meant when he says in verse 26, it was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because just like with those Old Testament believers, our relationship with God brings up the same problem. It's not just how does God forgive them, it's also how does God forgive us and stay righteous? Because we all know a a human judge 
who declares a person who has really committed a crime not guilty, knowing that they committed the crime, is not a good judge. He's wicked. So how can we say God is just and righteous when it seems like justification is saying that's what he does with us? Because justification is saying God declares us righteous. And yet we look at ourselves and we know we're not. So how can he be both just and the justifier? And the answer, again, you know it, it's the cross. This is what makes the cross so important. Because as we look back at the cross, we see that God is just and righteous. In fact, he is so just and so righteous that he could not justify us without dealing with our sin by punishing someone as important and beautiful as Jesus in our place for what we did. Which is actually part of what gives us assurance as Christians in terms of salvation as well. The the justice of God is scary for the sinner because it means that God must punish their sin. We see that at the cross. There is no chance of God ever overlooking one sin. Never, ever in the history of the world has there been one sin that has been forgiven without its debt being paid. Which means if God's justice comes to the unconverted person and says, it is time for you to be punished for all your sins. Justice is not going to listen if you make excuses, if you try to to bribe him. For the, the sinner, justice is your enemy. But for the person who has put their faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, his justice is their best friend. That he's so consistent. Because Paul says, we are justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. In other words, we are justified because our sins have already been judged. And so as Charles Spurgeon once put it, that means if God's justice were somehow to come to you as a believer and say, you have sinned, and that sin must be punished. We can say back as believers, we can say back to justice, justice, you have already punished my sins, all of them. Absolutely everything that I should have suffered has been suffered by my substitute, Jesus, 2,000 years ago. And so while it's true that I owe you a debt that is greater than I could ever repay, in Christ, I owe you nothing for all I owe, he's already paid. Isn't that awesome? And you know, if justice still wasn't satisfied, you could go and you could take justice with you to Gethsemane and stand there and say, justice, do you see that man grieving there? groaning, crying, praying, suffering, crushed, broken, and bruised. Do you know why? It's for me. And if that were somehow not enough, you can take justice and say, come, come. Look at him as he stands before Pilate. On trial, accused, charged with treason and with blasphemy, taken by the soldiers, spat upon, tortured. Do you see that man, Justice? Do you see that man? Do you know who he is? He's the creator of the universe, and yet he's enduring all of this. Do you know why? It is for me. It is for me. Oh, Justice, do you still need more? 
Look at him as he's taken to the cross. He's, he's stripped. He's whipped. Is this not enough? No, justice? What will satisfy you? Nothing, justice says, but death. Then come and watch as he's hurled on his back and he's nailed to a cross. If justice accuses and says, you've sinned, you've failed too many times to be forgiven. Who are you? Who are you? You can say to justice, can you see his broken body hanging there? Stand here with me, justice, and watch him as he endures the wrath of God and cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you know why, justice? It is for me. It is for me. The cross shows us the absolute unswerving justice of God. And the justice of God means he's going to punish sin, but he is not going to punish that sin twice. The problem has never been, how can God judge sin? The problem has always been, how can God be just and still forgive? Which is the first thing that makes what the Bible teaches about justification so important. It glorifies God. Second, it humbles us. It humbles us. Paul asks, verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? And Paul has to connect the dots. One of the problems so often is that we don't connect the dots. And so here he asks, then what becomes of our boasting? Which almost sounds like a funny way to say it because it, it seems like someone's disappointed. Like, then what becomes of our boasting? But I think that captures the way the human heart works pretty well because we're always looking for a reason to boast. In other words, we're always looking for something to take personal pride in. Like, hey, look at me. I did this. We absolutely love anything that gives us a reason to feel confident about ourselves. And unfortunately, I think that's also part of what makes it so difficult for us to accept what the Bible teaches about justification by faith alone. And it's almost like Paul's bringing this up as another objection. Like, Paul, whoa, 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 slow down. If this is true, then what becomes of our boasting? <laughs> It's amazing because this is something beautiful, the doctrine of justification. Paul's telling us that salvation is this gracious gift from God, and yet still he knows, even though it's beautiful, some people are going to hear what the Bible teaches, and instead of getting excited, they're going to be bothered because they're wondering, then hey, hey, what becomes of our boasting? Like, wait a second, Paul, slow down, because it kind of seems like what you're saying about justification takes away our reasons for feeling superior to others. Like, what becomes of our boasting? Which even though I haven't heard anyone put it quite that directly before, I think sometimes may be one of the main stumbling blocks in reality when it comes to justification by faith alone, why it's so hard for us to get, because it's not really hard to understand, like, the words. And yet, when you talk about justification by faith alone, and especially when you talk about, like, applying it to, like, actual life, like, when we leave here, a lot of times it's like talking to the wall. And, and I think that's partly because it's so hard for our human hearts to accept anything that takes away a reason we might have to boast in ourselves, which justification by faith most clearly does. In Paul's words, what becomes of our boasting, it's, it's excluded which again is just so hard for us to give up because we've spent most of our lives looking for reasons to boast. If you think about it, we come out of the womb 
looking for reasons to feel superior to others. And maybe because we've had so much practice, we're basically professionals at it. We're professionals at finding reasons to boast in ourselves. You bring up a failure in my life, I guarantee you I can make it sound like a success. It can be so obvious that we're complete failures in certain areas, and yet we'll either find excuses why we're not really failures, or we'll find a way to make it look like that failure is somehow a success. And I'm telling you, this is a passion for us, for all of us, even people who say they have low self-esteem. Often the, the reason they're so down on themselves is because they love themselves so much, and they're frustrated they don't have more reasons to boast for in themselves which isn't good for us. That, that's the thing. This passion for boasting isn't good for us, and it isn't good for our relationships, and it certainly isn't good for our relationship with God. We weren't made to boast in ourselves. When we boast in ourselves, we destroy ourselves. It does something really bad in us. We can't have a good relationship with others, with ourselves, with life, with God, when we are working so hard at defending ourselves and exalting ourselves and promoting ourselves, which is part of why God designed salvation the way he did. That's another reason justification by faith alone is so important. He designed salvation in such a way that we would have absolutely no reason to boast in ourselves. That's one reason it can't be by works, because if salvation were somehow by works, we would have reason to boast. That's how Paul puts it in the second part of verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. In other words, the law of works doesn't exclude boasting, obviously. Law of works being a wrong interpretation of the Mosaic law, like with the Pharisees, who seemed to think that obedience to the Mosaic law was the way in which they could justify themselves before God. And Paul says, if they were right and that were true, and you did earn your acceptance with God through your obedience to the law, then you would have reason to feel superior to others. The law of works doesn't exclude boasting, but the law of faith does, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And faith is basically the anti-work. It's, it's pretty hard to boast in yourself when you're saying there is no good in yourself. It's hard to boast in yourself when you're saying that you are helpless to save yourself. It's, it's hard to boast in yourself when you're saying your only hope is someone else dying in your place. Faith and boasting are, are in yourself are opposites because saving faith is what, as someone has put it, it is the realization that there is nothing you can do but trust in what has been done in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Faith is the realization that God's pleasure in you will never be based on your performance for him. Instead, God's pleasure in you will always be based upon Christ's performance for you. In other words, it's impossible for saving faith to take pride in itself because it is receiving that which is not your own as a gift. It's looking to someone else to save you. It's recognizing your own unrighteousness and ungodliness. It is the act of a hopeless, helpless person saving faith. It is the act of someone who recognizes his hopelessness and helplessness and who is looking for help and relief in Christ alone. It is going out from yourself. It is renouncing yourself and is taking all of your trust 
and all of your confidence and putting it in Christ for forgiveness of sin, acceptance with God, and the hope of eternal life. And it is a gift from God. Saving faith. I mean, if you want to go a little bit deeper, the only reason you are able to have this kind of faith is because God enabled you to believe. I know for myself, as an example, if God left me to myself, I was busy suppressing the truth, not believing it. Which is why being saved by faith excludes boasting, and it is all God from beginning to end, our justification. And yet, obviously, our problem is we're, we're, we're always looking for a reason to take pride in ourselves, and, and that's what makes this so difficult. So difficult. I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was talking about how he would explain this doctrine. He was a great preacher from the 1900s, and he was talking about how he would explain the doctrine of justification by faith alone to people and how it's all about Christ and God putting his righteousness upon us. And after he would explain it, he would look at uh, the person he was talking to, and he would say, well, now you're quite happy about, about what I said. Do you believe it? And they would say, yes. And then he would say, well, then, are you now ready to say that you're a Christian? And they would hesitate. And he says, at that point, I know they have not understood. Then he'd say, what is the matter? Why are you hesitating? And they would say, I do not feel that I'm good enough. He writes, at once I know that in a sense I've been wasting my breath. They're still thinking in terms of themselves. Their idea still is that they have to make themselves good enough to be a Christian, good enough to be accepted with Christ. They have to do it. I'm not good enough. Sounds very modest, but it is the lie of the devil. It is a denial of the faith. You think that you're being humble, but you will never be good enough. Nobody has ever been good enough. The essence of Christian salvation is to say that he is good enough and that I am in him. As long as you go on thinking about yourself and saying, ah, yes, I would like to, but I'm not good enough. I'm a sinner, a great sinner. You are denying God and you will never be happy. You will continue to be cast down and disquieted in your soul. You will think that you're better at times and then again you'll find that you're not as good as you thought you were. You read the lives of holy people and you realize that you're nowhere. So you keep on asking, what can I do? I still feel that I'm not good enough. Forget yourself. Forget yourself. Forget all about yourself. Of course you're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. The Christian way of salvation tells you this, that it does not matter what you've been. It does not matter what you've done. It's about Christ. He goes on, he says, how can I put this plainly? I try to say it from the pulpit every Sunday because I think it is the thing that is robbing most people of the joy of the Lord. It does not matter if you've almost entered into the depths of hell, if you are guilty of murder and every other vile sin. It does not matter from the standpoint of being justified with God. You are no more hopeless than the most respectable, self-righteous person in the world. Because the whole way that God designed salvation was so that we couldn't boast in ourselves. That's justification by faith alone. In fact, I think that's one way to test your view of salvation. If you really understand the central message of Christianity, if your view of salvation enables you to boast in yourself at all, then it's not a biblical view of salvation. 
Because Paul says here, a true understanding of justification by faith alone excludes boasting, which is part of the reason God made it justification by faith alone, because faith is the only way we could receive salvation that would make it impossible for us to take pride in ourselves, which is so freeing if you think about it. Because we get so worked up and we get so worried about what everybody thinks about us. And so a lot of us, we're constantly living our lives trying to find ways to make ourselves look like we're worthy. We want others to know we're worthy. Sometimes because we have this deep sense of inadequacy, we always have to come up with these things. We feel like we'll show that we are not inadequate. And the truth is, it can be exhausting. It is exhausting for us and for everyone around us because we're always having to find ways to boost ourselves up. If someone confronts us, no, they can't confront us. They have to know we're good. If someone's doing better than us, we have to find a way to say, no, I'm actually doing better than you. And it's all so pointless when we look at our relationship with God because God not only doesn't save us because of certain special things we've done, he chose to save us in such a way that we couldn't boast in ourselves. Which means if you're feeling like you have nothing to offer, like you aren't that important, like why would God love you? He's like, okay, you're getting close now. You're getting close now. You just need to take the next step, which is to realize that if you put your faith in Jesus, he does love you. Romans 5, verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Justification by faith alone is important. We, this should be a doctrine. We as a church, we keep at the center, the center. We love it. We're urgent about letting everyone know about it because it glorifies God. It humbles us. And third, it unites Christians. It unites Christians. One of the reasons Paul wrote the book of Romans, just a little background real quickly, was because there was some tension between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And, and for Paul... In his day, this was like the single biggest division there was, actually. Right now, we think of the division between black and white or rich and poor. Paul thought of the division between people who were Jews and people who were Gentiles. And it was a problem in the early church, even after people became Christians. And a lot of it had to do with the Jewish believers thinking Gentiles had to become Jewish to really be part of the people of God. And while that's not a problem we tend to think much about, there are still other kinds of things that divide us, like Obviously, our race being one of them. We'll, we'll divide over anything. And so it's kind of amazing that you can be proud of the color of your skin and divide from others on the basis of that. But people clearly do, somehow. And if it's not our race, it's our position. Some people have money and others don't. And the people with money feel superior to those who don't so often. And the people who have less are angry at the people who have more, or even education. One person in the family is super smart. He gets put like in his special place. He, he, he gets a good education. He comes back to the family. He feels superior, superior to everyone else in his family who didn't get that education. And they start getting angry at him as well because they're like, who does he think he is? As we look at the world, there are all kinds of things that divide us. And the truth is the world doesn't really have a solution. 
because it can't deal with the fundamental problem, which is another reason to love what the Bible teaches about justification by faith alone. So it's great being a pastor in South Africa, which has a long history of problems in regards to race, preaching justification by faith alone, because you realize that justification by faith, uh, justification by faith alone reveals the real problem with racism. <laughs> racism is heresy, actually. Justification by faith alone enables us to be united because it shows us first what the problem is, which you remember is where Paul began by confronting these Jews who were feeling superior. He starts by looking at the Gentiles, which they would have been like, yeah, they are terrible. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul just flips the tables and he says, therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, ju you, the judge, practice the very same things. And so if there's one thing justification by faith alone shows you, Paul is revealing, one thing it shows you is that you're not better. You, you, you might feel better because you have certain privileges, and so you might hold up those little privileges as a badge like the Jews did. We have the law, we have circumcision, which made them feel superior to everyone else, but Paul reminds them all of that didn't do them any good because they didn't obey it. And they couldn't obey it just like the rest of us. When it comes to God, we're all in the same position, all of us. None of us has anything we can show to God and say, look at this, I really am better, actually, than everyone else, because there's, there's not one of us who deserves salvation. It's funny, you know, because I think we've learned, most of us, we've learned, we can't go around saying we think we're better than others. Like, that doesn't seem to work very well. Uh, well, actually, <laughs> there are some people who are going around saying they're better than others and get big political positions, but we know in our life that doesn't work for us to go around saying we think we're better <laughs> than others. But we have so many problems in our relationships with other people because we really do think we're better than others. We might not say it like some people do, but we do think we're better than others. Our culture is better than your culture. Our race is better than your race. Our abilities are better than your abilities. Whatever, which justification by faith alone demolishes because the first thing it does is show you that in terms of the most important relationship in your life, the most beautiful person in the universe, we're all in the same position. We all deserve to be damned. And actually, if we're holding up any of these things to God as a reason he should love us, like look at my education, look at my race, I'm better, I'm worthy. If we're trusting in any of those things, we're not going to experience salvation. The cross brings us all down to the same place. Racism, feeling superior to others, feeling inferior to others, is a theological problem because it is a denial of what the Bible teaches about us, and it is a denial of what the Bible teaches about God which is where Paul goes next in verse 29. He says, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, or is God the God of the Jews only? And so it's like Paul saying, wait, I know there are these different groups of people out there, but there's only one God, right? And the Jews, they knew there was only one God. Obviously, that was a fundamental part of their religion. God is one, which is why Paul asks, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. And, and since we're all in the same position, we all need to be saved. And since we all can't save ourselves, then there's only one way for any of us to be saved, and that is 
for God to save us. And since there's only one God, obviously then there's only going to be one means of salvation. Justification by faith alone. And Paul is saying the only means for any of us to be saved is for God to provide a righteousness that he can give to us as a gift. And if we've all been given this righteousness by God as a gift through faith, then what happens to all these distinctions? The cross doesn't only bring us down to the same place, it also brings us up to the same place. If Jesus died for me and he died for you, then why am I acting like you are somehow something more? If I was so sinful that God had to pour out his wrath on his son for the sins that I committed, then how am I acting like I am somehow someone better? If the only way I'm saved is because I've been given a gift that I didn't deserve by God, and the only way I was able to receive that gift is because God opened up my hands and knocked everything that I was clinging onto out of them so I could come to him empty-handed, then how could I ever look down on someone else? And if justification means that the perfect righteousness of Christ has been credited to my account, that the most holy God, the most important person in the universe, accepts me and forgives me, and delights in me, and loves me because of what Jesus did, then how dare I, how dare I go around feeling inferior to anybody else? This was like a a light bulb when you've seen problems in relationships between people who are feeling superior and inferior. It's easy to think that it's only the person who's feeling superior that has the theological problem, and he does. He needs to realize he deserves hell. But you're talking to a believer who is feeling inferior because of something like his race or something like his education to someone else. That also is a theological problem. That is not humility. That is not humility. He needs to believe justification by faith alone. You are in Christ. And because of Christ, you have the righteousness of God. How dare you dishonor that by treating that other person like he's somehow better because he has a Ph.D.? There's a a reason why God saved us this way. And there's a reason why we as a church have to keep this truth at the forefront. It, It glorifies God. It humbles us. It unites the church. And finally, it honors the word. Here, Paul says the law, verse 31. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And he says that, of course, because in Paul's day, there were people who were attacking the gospel by saying it minimizes the law. And Paul says it's actually the opposite. It upholds the law. How? It honors the law. Well, first of all, it's part of what enables us to obey it. And it could be when Paul talks about the law here, he's talking about the commands of God. And if so, then he's saying, does justification by faith alone mean we don't care about the commands of God and just throw them out and live however, now that we're saved by grace? And he's like, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the commands because it's really only those who are justified by faith that are able to obey those commands, which is is true for sure and part of what makes justification by faith alone important. It is the foundation for sanctification. It's kind of like how before you live as a married couple, you need to be legally married. Before you can really live for God, you need to be justified. But second, though, and this might be 
more what Paul's saying. It shows us how serious God is about the law. It upholds the law in that Jesus came and fulfilled it. So obviously we're not saying these laws were not important, but the opposite. They were so important that God couldn't save us without those laws being perfectly obeyed, which of course is what Jesus did. And then finally, and I think this is probably what Paul means, it honors the law because it fulfills it. Sometimes the word that Paul uses for law refers to individual commands. And sometimes he uses it more generally just to talk about a means of revelation. So like if we read the Old Testament, there's that section called the prophets. There's another section called the writings. There's another section called the law. And I think that might be how he's using it here because he knows that someone hearing the gospel might think, does that mean this new righteousness this righteousness, this new way the righteousness of God has been revealed, does it mean this whole section of the law is not important any longer? And one reason I know someone could think that is because there have been people who have thought that. And Paul's like, no way, because the gospel fulfills everything the law was talking about. It's not two different stories. When we talk about God justifying Gentiles and Jews through Christ, we're actually helping you understand what God and Moses originally intended to point to in the law. And of course, in chapter four, Paul's gonna prove that as he looks back to the law and shows us what it reveals about how Abraham was justified by faith, which means you know, that we're not simply New Testament believers, we're whole Bible believers, which I think is another reason why justification by faith alone is important because in many ways, it's what the whole Bible is about to help you understand this doctrine, which is why as we look forward to this next year at Cornerstone Bible Church, we wanna be people who glory in it, who understand it, who understand it, who enjoy it, and who apply it to our lives and the way we think and the way we feel, and who help each other apply it to our lives. If you come to this church for very long and you wanna know what we're about, what is our vision? It has to do with a message. We're here to proclaim a message. We're here to promote a message. We're here to protect a message. We're here to display a message. And what message exactly? If you ask, what do these people want me to know? There's a lot, of course, a lot. But boil it down. We preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. We want you to understand who Jesus is and what God was doing through Jesus and his work on the cross. And to be honest, we're kind of urgent about that and hoping to even get more urgent about that. Because we know that it's only through the cross that you can come to really know God. And it's only through the cross that you can come to really know yourself. And it's only through the cross that you can actually come to have peace with others. And it's only through understanding what was happening on the cross and what it says about how God justifies sinners that you can understand what the Bible is actually about. Because there's more, obviously, to the gospel and to the Bible and what you need to know than justification by faith alone. A lot more. But at the end of the day, all of that information is not going to help you much if you don't know and if you don't stand up for justification by faith alone. This is the doctrine on which you stand or fall. And you need to constantly remember that by thinking about it, preaching it to yourself, and by coming together and gathering with other believers where we hear week after week after week how much we need the gospel. 
how much we need to be justified, what it means for us to be justified, and the difference this doctrine makes, how it glorifies God, humbles us, unites the church, and honors God's word. Let's pray. Lord, help us never to be people who just think we, we know it all and we've got it all together. We, we, we understand justification by faith alone. Let's put it in our little box of things we know. Instead, God, keep taking us back to the gospel. Please, Lord, show us daily how much we need a Savior. Remind us constantly that Jesus is the only Savior. Help us to understand what it means to have the righteousness of God credited to our account. And Lord, please help us to apply it. Help us to apply it. Help us not to be people who sing amazing grace at church and then live self-righteous lives throughout the week. Help us not to be people who say all these great things about justification by faith alone and then live like everybody else, justification by works. But instead, Lord, take this doctrine and transform our lives that we might show and tell, that we might tell people this message, this great and glorious message, and that we might as a church, through our relationships with one another, through the way we think about God, through the way we uh, behave, through what we pursue, that we might show the world the difference it makes to believe that God is for us, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done through Christ. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.